I've had an opportunity this week to ponder on things concerning worship music. I haven't talked to you, you Megan, about this. I'm not going to put you on the spot. <laughs> You're fired. No. No, I've, I've had opportunity to consider things about worship music and the worship wars that go on in churches and done a lot of thinking about that this week. And I just want you to know how appreciative I am of our worship team and Megan's leadership. <laughs> Megan is... is um, I don't know if you pay attention to this, I hope you do, but it's very, very discerning about what music we sing and play and, and we don't re repeat things 160 times in a song and things like that. The, as if you noticed this morning, the, the words are, are good, sound theology. And I appreciate you, Megan, for that. So thank you to everybody who's part of the worship ministry. You are, you are the worship leaders and we praise God for you. Um, John has a story from Mexico that needs to come out. So come on, come on up here. Sorry, this was unscripted. Uh, as we were praying, as Mike was praying, I just I felt this story um, come onto my heart. Uh, it's one that Betsy told us, and I kind of want to tell you the real reason of what goes on down there. I'll try to keep it short. But um, some of these kids don't have parents. That's true. Some of them do have parents, but the parents choose to drop them off because they can't take care of them. Um, and sometimes they choose to take those children back. And uh, they were telling us one story of uh, three, three siblings got dropped off. And uh, one of them made it almost through the program, or through the program, I don't remember exactly, but um, he essentially graduated. Well, they pulled the other two out with him, and so none of them were going there anymore. Um, and, and Betsy said what they do is they give those kids... Each day that they are not on the streets is a day that they can invest in their lives, teach them the truths, and uh, build into them. Uh, well, these three kids got pulled out, and um, two of them are now dead, and one of them is, uh, is on Mexico's most wanted or the state's most wanted. I don't remember exactly how the story went. But what they do down there is very real, and how they affect the kids around them, and what they do to build into them. So yes, we're going and building houses, and yes, we're playing with the kids, and yes, we're being fathers or showing what a family looks like, but that is why we are showing what a family looks like, because they don't have it, and that's what reality looks like to them. So this is what we're doing when we go down there. It's not just, it's, it's a fun mission trip for us, but we're doing real work down there. So any of you that think that you can't do it, you're wrong. Because spending five minutes with these kids shows them the love of Christ, that you are willing to take time out of your schedule. They can't believe that we take time. This is our vacation. We take time to go down there and work with them um, to help them out. So if you think you can't, you're wrong. You can. If you don't have skills, like they said, we can help you. We can teach you. Or you can just be a loving shoulder for that kid to cry on. Okay? So that's all I had to say. Thanks. Thank you. Let's pray. Jesus, that's a good word. That's a good word. 
It reminds us of the, the importance of investing in our kids' lives, the Word of God. So, Lord Jesus, I praise you for what happened in Mexico. I praise you for the ministry there that is, that is, that is seizing the opportunity to invest in the lives of children and families. And now as we come to, uh, come to your word this morning, we, we, we hold this great and precious salvation um, as, as dear to us this morning. We hold your word as truth. We hold, we hold your scripture, Lord Jesus, as, as your inerrant word that is profitable for, for everything in our life. So by the power of your Holy Spirit who lives in us and leads us and guides us, would you open up your word this morning? Get the messenger out of the way. Get the clumsy words out of the way and speak to us in a powerful way this morning. For each of us, would you find our hearts just laid open before you, willing to hear, willing to soak up your word, willing to take it in. And Lord Jesus, may, we, may our lives be transformed because of our interaction with your word this morning. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So for the last few weeks, we've been, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been looking at chapter 5, uh, the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. And um, just by way of review, the first part of chapter 5 uh, contains the Beatitudes. We spent several weeks walking through each one of the Beatitudes, the, uh, the statements that, that are happy are they. We've, we talked a lot about those. Um, One of the things that stands out to me about the Beatitudes is that that is the way to walk. That's Jesus is saying, life in the kingdom, it looks like this. And these are the characteristics of those who walk in my kingdom, in my truth, in my ways. And Jesus said, happy are those, blessed are those, blessed of God are those who walk in these ways, in these truths. That's the Beatitudes. The, the interesting thing about the Beatitudes is that it, it also flips around. It's also meaning that this brings pleasure to God, that this gives, this gives happy, joy, blessing to God the Father as we walk in those ways. Um, the Beatitudes are introductory, and they are foundational statements for, for life in the kingdom of God, for what it means to walk and to be in Christ. Let me say that again, and if you could underline it, be in Christ. But the flip side of that is that God never leaves us in that place. His work in us is always followed by a call to do, a call to go. And Megan even referred to that this morning. There's two callings, if I'm recapping what Megan said. Calling to come, that's the Beatitudes, and a calling to go. Those are the two things that Jesus gives to us. The invitation to abide in him is, a, is accompanied by an invitation to follow him. Jesus uses two metaphors to describe what our role as followers of Christ is to be in the world. I'm tempted to say that we are called, and indeed we are called, but in this case, Jesus simply says that we are salt and light. He doesn't say he calls us to be that. He says that we are. And I think that's a, a tremendous distinction. <coughs> so as we study this passage this morning, you'll know that we, we went on into chapter 5, and I purposely left 
this section of the, of the Beatitudes, this ending of the Beatitudes, so that we could come back to it on our, our mission Sundays and work on it. As we, as we study this, this passage, this text today, we're going to find an incredible calling. But we're also going to find a profound identity that is to mark our lives and our faith. For those of us who long for significance, who long to know all that God has for them, the two truths that Jesus gives today are going to be life-changing. So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. So we'll go backwards in our study. We were at the end of 5. Now we're going back to the middle. Matthew chapter 5. I'll start at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, it seems like a clear enough passage to us this morning, but as we meditate on these thoughts, we realize there's a ton of stuff in these, in these, in these choice words. A ton of stuff for us to take away. But as we walk through it today, I'd, I'd like us to see two things. And we're, gonna, we're going to go in there and unpack a lot of things. But I, if we could come away with two ideas at the end of our time together. First of all, I'd like you to see, I'd like you to underline, I'd like this to be imprinted on your heart today. That this teaching is for you. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, for us, that just seems really bizarre. And I'm, now I'm, I'm off my script, and I'm going to get ahead of myself. But this gets really bizarre. Jesus is the light of the world. That's what he told us in John 8. He is the light of the world. John chapter 1, the, the gospel writer, John, goes to great length to say, the light has come into the world. Jesus is the light. And in the, in the, in the, at the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus turns it around. He looks straight in the eyes of his disciples and he said, you are the salt of the earth. Oh, there's a whole lot of stuff going on in there. We're going we're gonna to take a run at it today. We won't accomplish everything, but I just want you to know that this teaching is for you. It's not for Billy Graham. It's not for a world-class evangelist. It's not, it's not for the wise people of the world. It's for you. This is a calling. This is, this is a role. This is, this is our identity in Christ. And then the second thing I, I hope that you'll take away today. We're going to talk about good works. You recognize at the end of the passage, Jesus said, your good works, do your good works. So we're going to talk about that. And Jesus indeed calls us to good works. But here's what I want us to remember when we're all said and done with this today. The cross always comes before good works. Jesus Christ always comes before good works. So as we talk about good works today, as we wind up there and we, we kind of wrap up our time together with good works, I don't want us to ever get away from the idea that good works flow from the cross. Good works flow from the empty tomb. 
They don't, they don't lead us to the empty tomb. They flow out of it. We don't earn our salvation by good works. Good works come because it's the natural response to the great grace that God has shown to us. The good works always come after the cross. You might have seen my article. How many of you get the weekly email from Valley Free? Okay. If you don't, write, write, a, write a note to office at Valley Free and get on the list for the weekly email, okay? If you read my article this week, and I'm sure all of you did, you probably, as soon as you saw it, you said, oh, I can't wait to hear what Mike has to say. Okay. Okay. I was serious about that. You, heard, you, you read my story in there this week about a, 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 a colleague of mine, not in the free church, but a, a, in the network of pastors that I know, gave a message, and, and as I listened to his message, he was talking about good works, he was talking about our need for compassion and social justice, and he started off well <clears throat> with the gospel and with Jesus, but then as his message went on and on and on, as, as his message went on, I didn't mean to sound like that. All of a sudden, I realized the gospel is missing now. The good works became social justice, and the social justice became an end unto themselves. And I was grieved for my pastor friend. Because in his passion to do good works, in his passion to see social justice, which is a, a buzzword that is worth unpacking all by itself, in his passion to do the good works, he left the cross and the empty tomb back there someplace. And my heart was grieved. So friends, I don't want us to make that mistake. So let's look at it. And I think this, 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 this passage today is a powerful reminder of what Jesus is calling us to be about. So let's look at it. And we're just going to run really fast through here because there's so much stuff. Salt and light. First of all, I'd like us to understand that this is a picture of the world. How in the world did Cinderella get this out of this passage? But it's a picture of the world. It's, it's, it's clear that it's, it's part of our identity to be salt and light in the world. So we're going to lay these two ideas side by side today. We'll see that each of them, salt and light, carry distinctive roles in the world. And the first thing that we need to see is that the idea of salt and light, these, these metaphors of salt and light, we need to understand what they say to us about the condition of the world. So let me, let's, let's just start here. We're going to do this through a couple of points today. Salt and light. Let's start with salt, this idea of the world. Of the, of the two ideas, salt and light, this, this idea is, is kind of on the negative side. So what does salt tell us about the world? So among other things, we could talk about the properties. We could call up Josh, the chemistry guy from Friday night, and ask him about salt. But among all the, all the uses of salt, it's primarily a preservative. In the days of Jesus, you never, saw, you, you never saw a food label that said, please, refri please refrigerate after opening. I was really hoping that'd be a great joke right there. <laughs> they didn't have refrigerators. Hello? They had no way to keep food cool. And as a result, food, especially meat, would spoil quickly. So we have refrigerators, but we can still imagine what happens if we leave a pound of hamburger or a package of pork chops out on the counter for a few days by themselves. We know what happens. They turn all kinds of colors, they grow some fuzz on them, and they stink up the whole house. 
Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to ask for hands. It, it, to put it nicely, leaving meat out too long results in decay. Or here's the big word, putrefaction. Enter salt. If salt were rubbed into the meat in the days of Jesus, if salt were rubbed into the meat, it would preserve the meat for a time without refrigeration. Salt may bring out the flavor, but it's first and foremost, it preserves the meat. Despite our best efforts at preserving our society or our culture, the Bible says that the world, societies, cultures, peoples, governments, go right down the list, the Bible says that it's all given to decay without the truth of God or the message of Jesus Christ. To prevent decay or putrefaction of the world, Jesus gives his disciples as salt to preserve the world, to save. So let's go back a little bit, just a, a really quick summary of, of, of recent history. Beginning with the Enlightenment, mankind was, has been seeking to resolve this issue of decay on their own. Science, seeking knowledge, materialism, seeking life in the natural world, seeking answers in the natural world have all been attempts by mankind to understand life and to evolve into all that, that we think we should be. But it's all without God. And so if we think of, if, if man is striving for that, then the 20th century should have been a, a great century of evolution for mankind, right? We're working towards it. We're discovering new things. We're, 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 we're getting rid of diseases. We're, we're all growing and everything is going well and we're all evolving to a better state. And so the 20th century should have been a banner century for us. We all know that it wasn't. It wasn't. Instead, it resulted in the worst wars, the greatest loss of life, and the most horrific purging of people the world has ever seen. Putrefaction. So the Bible is clear that if we are left to ourselves, decay and putrefaction are the natural process. The world needs salt. It needs a preservative against sin. It needs something to stand against the decay. It needs something to stand against the self-seeking and the man-centered wisdom. Consider Adam and Eve, just one generation into their sin, just one generation and one of their sons murdered the other. That's decay. By the sixth chapter of Genesis, mankind was so disobedient and so lost in wickedness and violence that God said, I regret that I ever made them. Enter Noah, salt, who proclaimed the word of God, who built a boat in the middle of a field, probably on top of a hill, built a boat where no sea had ever been, where the rains had never come, and the world mocked him. But he stood as a symbol of salt in a world of decay. Consider <coughs> God gave the world a fresh start. He destroyed all, the, all, all of mankind with, with a flood, and he gave a new fresh start through the, the family of Noah. But what happened? The people of the earth quickly gathered to proclaim their independence from God out on the, on the fields of Shinar, and they built a tower that was supposed to reach up to heaven, and they were going to show themselves, what? They didn't need anybody else. That's decay. That's putrefaction. 
In the New Testament, Jesus said that, that men love the darkness more than the light. The Apostle Paul summed it up in Romans 1 by saying this in, in Romans 1, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's decay. That's putrefaction. And Paul summed it up later in Romans chapter 3 and he said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, the world needs a lifeline. And one of the things that Jesus has called us to do is to stand against the decay, to be salt. Now let's, let's, let's look at the other side of the coin. What does, what does light have to say about the world around us? That's the next metaphor, salt and light. The opposite of light, and here, here you go. This is, this is profound. Now write this down. The opposite of light is darkness. Right? This describes a world without Christ. When, when, when we lived in Romania, we occasionally had to drive through a tunnel because of all the mountains in Romania. We'd drive through tunnels. And, and I remember this one particular tunnel was, had no lights in it. Okay? When you go into a mountain... The sun really doesn't penetrate that all, all that well. And there wasn't a single light bulb in that tunnel. And the road was, was a mess. There were potholes. There were cars down inside the potholes. Yeah, how deep was it? You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. You ever been inside of a cave and they, and they turn the lights off for you to see how dark it gets? Can't see your hand in front of your face? That's what we experienced driving. It was so dark in that tunnel that my headlights barely made a difference. I've never seen anything like it before. The headlights just kind of disappeared into the darkness. That's what darkness is. Now, there's several passages in the Bible that describe this darkness of the world without Christ. Listen to Isaiah 59, verses 9 and 10. Therefore, justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness but we walk in gloom we grope for the wall like the blind we grope like those who have no eyes we stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor we are like dead men what's the first thing you do when you walk into a dark room first thing you do is you start feeling the wall and you start looking for the light switch maybe we look for a flashlight maybe we look for a candle but we look for the light we don't want to live in the darkness. We don't like to live in the darkness. But mankind has been looking for the light in, throughout all of history. Most recently, we've moved, we've moved beyond the, the pursuit of knowledge and science, which is still part of our discussion. But we've moved on to other things. Our, our generation is seeking light in ourselves. We're seeking religions that can enlighten us. Uh, we're seeking Oprah Winfrey style of, of light and her definition of Christianity is to seek the light that's in us. We seek meaning beyond the physical reality of the stars in the heavens, and we, we ask ourselves, why, where does it come from? And we seek that reality in the heavens. We seek for meaning beyond that which we can touch and feel. But the Bible says, Isaiah 59, we just read it, the Bible says that we're like blind men 
who are, who are, are groping along the walls and we're looking for the light switch. We're looking for the candle where the world doesn't know it, but they're looking for Jesus Christ who said he's the light of the world. We grope along looking for the light switch and that's the darkness that needs the light. You see, when we talk about salt and light, it reveals what the condition of the world is like. Let's go on to the next thing, salt and light. What is the role of the Christ follower then in this idea? So if they re- if, let's turn this idea around. If, 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 they, if these ideas reveal the fact that the world is decaying, that the world needs preservation, uh, if, if, if they explain a world that's living in darkness and in its desperate need of light, then let's ask the question then, what does that mean for us? So let's do it again. Salt. Again, this is the negative side of the equation. One author equated this idea of being salt as being, wait for it, wait for it, being moral disinfectant in the world. How's that for a strong statement? It carries the idea of standing against the tide of sin around us. So if you've ever killed a conversation when you went in a room, if someone is talking about something that is not very godly, and a conversation is going on, and, and they realize when you walk in the room that that's not appropriate because you're there. If you killed that conversation just by the fact that you are a Christian, then that's what it means to be salt. If somebody is standing in front of you cursing a blue streak, and they also, all of a sudden realize, hey, that person's a Christian, I probably shouldn't talk like that, and they apologize, then you know what it is to be salt. And all you have to do is be present. If you've ever argued for life in the context of abortion, then you've been salt. If you ever stood alongside someone who's being unjustly treated, then, then you have been salt. If you've ever test about, testified about Christ in a hostile environment, then you've been salt. To be salt in the world means that we stand for and we stand with Christ in the face of sin and godlessness. It's not violent. No, it is not violent. But it's truth that stands for Christ in the public square. That's what it means to be salt. Now let's look at light. Jesus tells us that we're a city on a hill. We're like a lamp that's lit in a dark room and it's, it's put up on a stand. And if you've, ever, if you've ever done this experiment with a candle, if, you're, if you hold a candle down like this, it gives off a little bit of light, but if you hold a candle up like this, it lights up the whole room, doesn't it? And Jesus says, you light the lamp and you put it on the stand and it gives light to everybody in the house. That's what he's talking about when we are called to be light. I once went to a conference in the, in the Black Forest area of Austria. At night, it was, it was pitch black and the stars were brilliant and they were vivid and, and there, was a, there was a small town, a, a village, down in this mountain valley, and we were up on one side of the, the mountain over here, and you could look out, and it was a little bit foggy, a little bit cloudy, and so the, the, the fog was just kind of hanging down a little bit, and there was a castle on the other side of the mountain. So you could look across, and there was this castle right at, at eye level, but the valley went way down below you, and the castle was all lit up, and it looked like it was suspended in the clouds. All you saw were clouds and fog in the valley down below and this, this, this castle shining brightly 
above the clouds. It was an amazing sight. And that's what Jesus said that we are to be like. We're to be, we're to be that light that, to shine, that, that, that city on a hill that, that shines brightly and for everybody to see it. And they, they, they wonder if Jesus wasn't referring to the villages. Even in the daytime, the villages were often painted white. The buildings were painted white. And they would shine, the sun would shine brightly off of them in a rural village in Israel. And Jesus is saying, a city, you are like that city. We, recent, we, we recently heard Katie Dudgeon tell her story up here as she came back from Berlin, Germany, and was talking about ministry there. And if you remember this story, she talked about the fact that there were a group of people who were going into the brothels in Berlin, Germany, and they were ministering to the ladies who worked in the brothels. They were going inside their lights. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You are bringing light wherever you are, whether it's the workplace, whether it's the home, whether it's the school, whether it's the neighborhood. We are all lights of God's grace and truth in our community. Let's keep going. Salt and light, the danger of neglect. Both of these metaphors include a warning for us. You see, there's, there's no halfway measure in these pictures of our identity and calling. We are to be witnesses for Christ. As a church and as individuals, we are to be following the Lord's leading wherever we go, to go where he says, and we are to draw attention to Jesus. If I'm understanding this correctly, losing our intentionality for these things to be salt and light, losing our intentionality carries with it a risk. Five thirteen. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, if we were to ask Josh, the chemistry guy, on Friday night about salt, he would tell us that salt in its purest form is stable. It can't break down. Listen to me talk about chemistry. But the salt that Jesus is referring to, the salt that they would have understood in that day, is not pure. In his day, the salt would be drawn from marshes and places like that, and it would be dried, and it would be mixed in heavily with impurities, and it could be easily diluted in fact, the white powder that would remain would often look like salt, but it really had little value as salt. Not good for anything. If I understand correctly, they would take this, this worthless powder that has just a little bit of salt left in it, they would put it on the roads to kill the weeds. It also had the effect of hardening the soil. And so the Romans would actually put this salt on the roads so they would harden the soil and make a road out of it. The Jewish people would put it up on the, on the rooftop. They had dirt up on the rooftop, and that was a play area. That was a, a hospitality area, and they would throw that salt up there so they could be worked in by people walking on it, worked into the soil and make it hard, make it a place to play. You see, when we, re, when, when we neglect this role, we neglect a critical part of our walk in Christ. We might look like a Christian, but we're not walking it out. And here's, here's where it gets, this is where it gets serious, and that is that we have one foot in the church, we have one foot in our faith, and we're trying to have one foot in the world. 
We're trying to hold the image of a Christ follower. We're trying to hold the image of a Christian. And at the same time, we're trying to be pleasing to the world. We're, we're trying not to ruffle the feathers of the world, but you can't have it both ways. The Lord says if, that, that if salt loses its saltiness, loses its flavor, it becomes worthless. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus told the church in Laodicea that their works were neither hot nor cold. He says because they were neither hot nor cold that he would spit them out of his mouth. Salt can lose its flavor and its preserving qualities. We are to be in the world, but we are to be distinct from the world. If we are afraid, okay, write this down. If we are afraid to be distinct in Christ Jesus, we are not following Christ. Light. Again, Jesus says we are to be light. The warning is, not, is to not cover the light. Covering a light with a basket would, would smother the light and would put it out. But I think here the idea has more, with, more to do with concealing the light. As followers of Christ, our light is to shine before people. Trying to cover the light is a denial of Christ. In, in fact, it's been said that, that, that covering the light is actually a prompting from Satan himself. That he would love nothing better than for you to cover up that light. So make sure nobody in the house can see it. Make sure it doesn't light up the room. Make sure that God's truth doesn't go out. In fact, when I think about this idea, and this, you are the light of the world, and you put the light on a stand and don't cover it up. When I think about this idea, I think about Satan might be standing right next to us and he might actually hold that basket and he might be holding it out to us saying, come on, come on, cover it up. And sometimes we listen. Sometimes we refuse. Jesus says, don't cover it up. You are to be distinct in the world around you. These are stern warnings. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who we've referred to often with the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, a pastor who ministered to the German church in the time of the Nazis and Hitler. He said it like this. Listen. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Wow. Okay, salt and light, the power and the glory. Let's keep going. Verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is where Jesus gives the reason for the teaching. We are to let our light shine before others so that, one, they see your good works, and two, what? Give glory to God. The messenger is not part of this equation, folks. It's all about giving glory to God. And what, what I'm to be involved in, my good works, the way I live my life, is to, is to cause people to say, I want what they have. I want what she has. I want to know the God that she serves. Now, there's lots of ways that we can do good works today. It doesn't even require that you have to be a Christian at times. And you can give money, you can give food, you can give resources to help others. We can serve in lots of ways. We can intervene in injustice. We can stand against evil in its many forms. But we are called to be light. We are called to be salt for the purpose, for the purpose of giving glory to God. We are distinct in our motives and our purpose. So I ask the question, what is a good work? What is a good work? 
it always, and we said this before, it always comes after the cross. It always comes after the empty grave. It always comes after the risen Christ. We dare not mess up that order. So, so what is a good work then? Ephesians 2.10 says that God created good works for you and I to walk in them since the creation of the world, since before the creation of the world. He created good works for you to walk in. So these, these good works are, or, are ordained by God. These good works are done for God. That's our motive. That's our purpose is to, is to follow God and to go where he calls us to go and to do what he calls us to do. And they're also done to reveal the light of God, the glory of God. You see, we're to go beyond looking good. We're, we're going beyond earning points with people. We're going beyond seeking our own reputation rather than God's reputation. It goes beyond simply feeling good about ourselves. Our good deeds are performed so that those around us see something about God. See something about God that prompts a response of praise. Our good deeds will hopefully spark an interest to know more about the living God. Our good deeds will point not to us, but to Jesus Christ. That's why our testimony and our interaction with the world is always to be seasoned with grace and truth. Because it should be pointing to God. I have a, somewhere in here. You'll be getting a copy of this next week, but our missions team is putting together a list of our missionaries. And, and um, our missionaries are salt and light in the world too. And here's what they're doing. Chad and Kristen Tabor, E3 partners, working in Southeast Asia and other places around the globe, working to go with short-term teams and to plant churches, establish churches, establish leaders. They're working in the area of, of human trafficking and preventing human trafficking. That's how, they, that's how they're following Christ. Katie Dudgeon, who was here just a few weeks ago, is, is, reach, is serving with Reach Global in Berlin. She's the city team leader. The goal of their whole team, the goal of the Reach Global, the free church mission there in Berlin, is to establish churches in Berlin so that people might hear. That's a good work. Johnny and Brittany Nelson are right here in, in, the, in the Twin Cities area with JSAW, and they're, they're working in the area of action sports, snowboarding and, and, and wakeboarding and, and skiing. I don't, know, I don't know what the list includes, not an action sports guy. But you know, if you know Johnny's story, it goes back, starts right here in this room. God got a hold of him as a 15-year-old kid. And from that moment on, he's been saying, I need, to, I need to share Christ with this group of people. And a lot of us wouldn't be in the same room with that group of people. We just don't run in that crowd. But Johnny's right there sharing Christ. He's, it's taken him across the globe to do it. We, go, we just go down the list. The, the Thomases are working in, in Asia. In, um, I won't mention the country, but they're working with Muslim background believers. And they're trying to establish disciples and churches in a country that's not very hospitable to it. Dave and Jan Stillwell, the same idea. You, I, you get the idea? So here's what they do. A missionary goes into a culture, and, they, and God has called them there. They go into this culture. They begin to learn the language. I love the message this morning about language. Did you hear that? Did you take that message away? We need to learn the language so we can communicate, so we can have a relationship with people. So missionaries go in. They learn the language, and they begin to learn the culture, and they begin to ask God, where would you have me be salt and light in this place? 
And for our missionaries, I just went over some examples. The response has been, I want you to go work in this area. Be salt and light over here. Brothers and sisters, that's what we do. That's what we do. We want to be salt and light wherever we go. And God has called us to be discerning of the culture around us, discerning the context that we're in, discerning of the relationships that we're in, the network that we're in. And how can I be salt and light today, Lord Jesus? Where would you have me go? It's always a response to this worship, to this great grace and salvation that God has given to us. God, how can I praise you today? How can I draw attention to somebody else, to you for somebody else today? That's the work of missions. That's the work of evangelism. That's the work of the kingdom. That's why I think it's so important. It's so important that you know this morning that God wasn't talking to a missionary. God wasn't talking to the Apostle Paul. God was, he was talking to all of his disciples, whatever that number was that day, on the side of that hill. And I believe that that call echoes out through the generations and it lands right here in the worship center of Valley Evangelical Free Church. And God says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And so I don't know what that means in your context. God is calling you in, into different places, different people, and it, might, it, it is around here, but it might be to go somewhere else to another culture, to go to Mexico. We have a team that's getting ready to go to Romania this summer. Dave and Cindy are getting ready to go to Africa in April. Two weeks you're leaving to go to Africa to give motorcycles away. I don't know what God's calling you to be about, but I do know this, that your identity in Christ is salt and light. And so I'm asking you this morning, I'm, I'm, I'm by the power of God's word saying to you, walk in your identity of Jesus Christ. When you walk into a room this week, when you walk into a hostile environment this week, you can say, I am a child of God, and God has me here in this moment for this purpose. Speak. Do reflect God's glory. Amen. God, may that be said of us. May that be said of us. That we are involved in things, our whole life is involved in reflecting the glory that you have given to us in your son, Jesus. The Apostle Paul says that you didn't choose the wise people of the world. You didn't choose the wisdom of the world. You chose broken pots, simple people, who would proclaim your good news. May it be said of us. Go in the name of Jesus. Go in the power of the Holy Spirit. Go in the good word of his truth. Amen. Amen. On your way rejoicing.